Good morning, everyone. As always, it is a great blessing to be here with you again today to worship, and it is a great privilege and joy to be able to minister to the word the word to you in our pastor's absence. It is my prayer that that God will use what comes forth from this pulpit this morning uh, to instruct you to convict your hearts, just as He has done for me as I have labored in the Word this past week. As many of you know, this week is a special occasion in the timeline of church history as we celebrate the 500-year anniversary of the Reformation, that great movement when God providentially moved on the hearts of men like Luther, Calvin, and many others to help reawaken the church to divine truth. Think about it, because of God's gracious providence in bringing about Reformation, we can gather here today to worship and actually open God's Word, unhindered by corrupt, man-centered traditions. Well, with that in mind, I ask that you please take your Bibles and turn back to that wonderful text from Romans 8 that we read together earlier this morning. And we will be looking today at verses 29 and 30. You know, of all things uncovered during the Reformation, one of the most important was exposing the soteriological inconsistencies, errors, and and corruption of the Roman Catholic Church and, and bringing to light a solid biblical understanding of the doctrine of salvation, particularly as it pertains to God's work in election. And that is precisely what we are going to look at today. So again, beginning in verse 29, Paul writes, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. You know, it is really a shame that this text is so controversial that it has become, in, in many circles, relegated to a proof text because it is part of a greater, pass- or a greater context of passages that is meant to give us hope, that is meant to give us assurance. And just to give you a few examples, look uh, at Romans 8.18 where... Paul reminds us of the hope we can have even in temporal suffering because of the glory that awaits us in eternity. Or look at verse 26, where Paul informs us that we can have hope even in our weakness. uh, When we don't know how to pray because the Spirit himself makes intercession for us. Or how about those encouraging words in Romans 8.28? where Paul tells us that no matter our circumstances, no matter what God is providentially bringing about in our lives, we can have hope because why? Because God is working all things for our ultimate good if we love him, if we are called according to his purpose. Well, this message of hope and assurance, it reaches a climax in our text this morning as it deals with that most important subject to all believers, and I'm talking about salvation. 
And when it comes to salvation, I would submit to you that we can have a hope that is certain. We can have an insurance that is unwavering because the God of Scripture is a truly sovereign God who always, who always accomplishes his purpose for his chosen vessels of mercy. And perhaps nowhere is this fact more emphatically set forth than it is in our text this morning. With that in mind, let's look at it a little more closely. First, I want to call your attention to the five key verbs in our passage. Notice what the text says, for those whom he foreknew. Here's your first key verb, foreknew. He also, what? He predestined. This is the second key verb. He predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Our third key verb. And those whom he called, he also justified. This is the fourth key verb. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Our fifth key verb. Now, once you see these key verbs, I want you to notice a couple of things, a a couple of of additional things about them. First, I want you to notice that each of these verbs describes a divine action. Each of these verbs describes a divine action, not a human action. It is God who foreknows. It is God who predestines. It is God who calls, who who justifies, who glorifies. This is important to note because there is nothing prescriptive about this text. Paul is not saying that that to be saved, you must do X, Y, and Z. No, instead, he is describing salvation from God's perspective. He is giving us a picture of how God operates in bringing his elect to glory. The second thing I want you to notice is how, uh, is how these verses are constructed and how Paul connects all of these divine actions together. Notice in verse 29 that those who are foreknown are also predestined. And then in verse 30, those who are predestined are also called. Those who are called are also justified. And those who are justified are what? They are glorified. What we see here is an unbreakable connection between God's redemptive work, past, present, and future. All of these divine actions are linked together in such a way that all of those who are foreknown will ultimately be glorified. This is the reason we refer to this text as the golden chain. And this morning, what I want to do is to examine the first two links of the chain which will focus on the doctrine of election. So let us look at the first link. Notice the first clause in verse 29, for those whom he foreknew. Divine foreknowledge is the first link in the golden chain. Now, our Arminian friends, they will say that divine foreknowledge here refers to God's omniscience, his, his prescience. They will say that it means that he foresaw in advance those who would believe and those who would not. 
And that based on that foreknowledge, he elects those who freely accept his offer of salvation given in the gospel. Well, I wholeheartedly reject that interpretation for at least a couple of reasons. First, it doesn't say that. It's not biblical. Keep in mind, as we just discussed, that the whole force of this passage focuses on what? The work of God. It focuses on the work of God. It says nothing of man's responsibility. That, of course, is not to say that man has no responsibility. So please don't hear that. But it's not mentioned here. Therefore, to make the phrase, whom he foreknew, say, whom he foreknew would believe of his or her own free will, it requires some interpretive cartwheels, doesn't it? It's a classic case of eisegesis in which one reads his own interpretation into the, into the text rather than reading the intended meaning out of the text. And uh, those of you who have been in our adult uh, Sunday school class, you probably know where this reading into the text is rooted. You see, when it comes to understanding uh, divine sovereignty, when it, uh, when it comes to understanding... Uh, 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 divine um, providence in an effort to make these things logically agree with human freedom and to shield God from accusations of evil, Armenians have adopted a view known as simple foreknowledge. Simple foreknowledge essentially teaches that God's decrees are based on his foreknowledge, his foreknowledge of the choices we make. Armenians believe that this is true in all areas of life, especially salvation. Again, the problem with this view, as I've already suggested, is that it's not biblical. That's not what the text says. It is a philosophical position that attempts to remove the paradox that exists between a truly biblical understanding of sovereignty and freedom. Besides that, it suffers from many logical problems of its own. And perhaps even more problematic, it undermines the attributes of God, essentially placing man in the place of preeminence above God. And I like what uh, A.W. Pink says in regard to this. He says, to argue that God is trying his best to save all mankind, but that the majority of men will not let him save them is to insist that the will of the creator is impotent and that the will of the creature is omnipotent. So, again, I reject the Armenian view that divine foreknowledge is merely God looking forward into the future and seeing in advance those who would believe and those who would not because it isn't biblical. Uh, it isn't biblical even to the point of undermining the very attributes of God. But I also reject this for a second reason. I reject this view because the scriptural evidence to the contrary is overwhelming. It's overwhelming. Scripture teaches that, faith, that the faith through which we are saved is a gift of God distributed according to God's sovereign will. Uh, just to give you a few examples, we read in Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, 
And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, in light of this passage, the great reformer Martin Luther argues that if faith comes from the believer himself and not from God, then it is what? It's a work. Perhaps it's a cheapened work, but it is a work nonetheless. Why? Because it would be something of our own doing. Does that make sense? John 6, 44. No one can come to me. In other words, no one can put saving faith in me unless the Father who sent me draws him Unless the Father who sent me means to literally drag. And I will raise him up on the last day. Now some argue that the drawing meant here is a a wooing or enticing. But it is better understood as the sovereign effectual calling through which God draws his elect to faith in Christ. Our Savior's very own words a few verses later beginning in verse 46 make this clear. He says, but there are some of you who do not believe. This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Similarly, after hearing the bold preaching of Paul and Barnabas and how the gospel was intended not only for the Jews but also for the Gentiles, Acts 13.48 says, And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Finally, and this comes from the 10th chapter of John's gospel. After making what is perceived as veiled comments about being the Messiah, the Jewish leaders approach Jesus and they say to him, How long are you going to keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. And Jesus responds beginning in verse 25. I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Now, As these verses make clear, and and there are many more we can cite, by the way, our faith, our trust is a gift and a sovereign work of God. Therefore, to suggest that divine foreknowledge is merely an exercise in omniscience, a, a looking forward, is really is to turn Scripture on its head. So... If divine foreknowledge is not God looking forward and and seeing in advance those who will believe in him, then what is it? What is it? First, and, and, and this is really important, divine foreknowledge carries the idea of foreordination. Now, we know this not only by our text this morning, but we can see this in the way that the word is used throughout the New Testament. For example, in Acts 2.23 uh, Peter is preaching uh, about the Lord on the day of Pentecost and he reminds his hearers that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan 
and foreknowledge of God. Notice that the word foreknowledge is coupled with definite plan. And by the way, the word definite plan, it carries the same idea as predestination in our text here in Romans. Now, is Peter suggesting here that God merely foresaw the crucifixion of Christ? Of course not. That doesn't make sense. The point Peter is making is that Christ's crucifixion, although carried out by the hands of evil men acting in their own sinful interest, it was nonetheless orchestrated by God. That's the idea. We also see the word for new used in Romans 11.2. Here Paul is describing God's dealings with the Jews and he says, God has not rejected his people whom he for new. Again, it is obvious that to ascribe mere prescience to this text, it makes little sense. The reasonable interpretation here is that God has not rejected his chosen people. We see this word again in Peter's first epistle, chapter 1, verse 2, where he refers to those who are elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Again, foreknowledge infers divine purpose here, not merely prescience. In fact, to to better uh, capture the idea, the RSV uses the word destined instead of foreknowledge. The point being that there is a clear inference of divine ordination in this text. So, what does this all mean? It means simply that divine foreknowledge is not some passive looking ahead as Arminians suggest, but rather it carries the idea of foreordination. When Paul refers to those uh, whom God foreknew, he is saying they have been chosen, they have been uh, ordained by God uh, to... to, uh, the position. So again, first we see that divine foreknowledge carries the idea of foreordination. But second, divine foreknowledge, as used in our text this morning, is also relational. It's relational. God does not merely know what his elect will do in the future, but he knows them in a special way that is distinct. Um, you know, just to, I sometimes use the analogy. Um, I know the president, I know who the president is, but I know my wife. You see the difference? And that's the idea here. And, and, and just to clarify that, uh, again, seeing the idea of how divine knowledge is used in other parts of Scripture helps us see this. Uh, let me just give you a few examples. Genesis 18.9, it says, For I have chosen him, by the way, Chosen, it comes from the, the Hebrew word yadah, which is very similar in meaning to the Greek New Testament word gnosis translated as knowledge. He says, for I have chosen him that I may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring Abraham what he has promised him. We see a similar idea in Jeremiah 5 where God says to Jeremiah, 
Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. And of course, we see this idea of knowledge throughout the New Testament as well. In John 10, 14, we read, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. A few, uh, a few verses later, and we read this text earlier, Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. That's John 10, or 10, 28. And in 2 Timothy 2.19, we read, But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are His. And how about Matthew 7.23, where Jesus rejects the false teachers. And what does He say to them? I never knew you, right? All of these texts, and again, many more we can cite, they show us that there is an intimacy to divine knowledge. To be known by God means to have a special relationship with him and to be a recipient of his delight and favor. And that is exactly what Paul means by foreknowledge in our text here this morning. Before the foundation of the world, God chose and, and he pre-established a relationship with those whom he would bring into this golden chain. It was not a mere foreseeing of the future, but a sovereign act carried out to the plan of God. Well, this brings us to our second link in the golden chain, predestination. Notice again in Romans 8.29, Paul writes, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. The word predestination, it comes from the Greek word pro-rizzo, and it means to mark out, to determine beforehand. Like the word foreknowledge also, I think it's helpful for us to see how this word is used in other parts of Scripture. Uh, for example, in Acts 4.27, in reference to the evil atrocities that, that sent Jesus to the cross, we read, for truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Now, there really is no ambiguity here, at least there shouldn't be. Similar to what we read in Acts 2.23 where the apostle uses the word foreknowledge. Scripture is telling us here that not only did, did God foreordain that Christ would die on the cross, he actually determined beforehand the specific actions of those evil men who played a part in murdering our, or murdering our Lord. We also see the word predestined used in Ephesians 1 beginning at... Uh, at the end of verse 4, here Paul writes, In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Now again, I do not think there's anything extraordinarily complex about the use of the word predestined here. It means what it sounds like it means. The adopted saints in this text have been 
marked out for adoption by God. And, and Paul even adds here, according to the purpose of his will. But in our text, there's more to predestination than just being marked out for adoption. Notice that our text says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined for what? To be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So, as we have seen, foreknowledge it already infers the idea of predestination, of foreordination. When God places his special love on his elect, when he, uh, in his sovereignty, establishes that relationship, he sets them apart for everlasting life. But when he predestines, in our text here, he has a very specific goal in mind. And that goal is what? It is to conform us to the image of Christ. Now, to get a full picture of what is going on here, I think it's important that we go back to the beginning. When God created the universe, um, when God created the universe, it was, as Psalm 19 reminds us, it was a, a declaration of his glory. A declaration of his glory. But all of, the, uh, of all those wonderful things he created, only one displayed that glory in a special way. And I'm talking, of course, about humanity. For among God's creation, only man, only humans were created in the image or likeness of God. Now, there is much debate in the church about what it means to be created in or some suggest as the uh, image of God. But I think that one of the things we can say for sure is that when God created us in his image, he created us to reflect his righteousness, to reflect his holiness. We were created to be image bearers of those glorious qualities, those communicable attributes that God possesses and shares with us, that he shares with humanity. Of course, as you know, when sin entered the picture, those attributes were distorted. So while it is true that, that we still bear God's image in some capacity, that image is so marred that it bears little resemblance to the perfected image that man once held. Well, enter our Lord. For those who trust in Christ, who, by the way, Colossians 1.15 tells us, is the image of God. For those who trust in Christ, that image is restored. That image is restored. First, in a legal sense, through justification, which we will look at next week. But also, in a real sense, through the process of progressive sanctification, which believers experience in the here and now, and in perfected sanctification, which we will experience in eternity. In other words, when Paul says that we are predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ, he is telling us that God has pre-appointed in us a restoring of that image of God in which we were originally created. At first, that restoration takes place 
gradually in this life as we hopefully grow and mature in faith. And when this life is over, and when the new man is no longer bound by this sinful flesh, that image will be restored to its pre-sin state. Like the only begotten Christ, God's adopted children will reflect those perfect qualities for which they were originally designed. Praise God, right? Well, it's also important to note here that Paul refers to Jesus in this text as the firstborn among many brethren. The firstborn among many brethren. In the Jewish culture, and in many other cultures as well, the firstborn son had a privileged status in the family. He had a privileged status in the family, whether, whether he deserved it or not. Because of this, the term was often used figuratively to express the idea of preeminence or, or supremacy. And that is exactly what Paul has in mind here. Jesus as God's only begotten son. Again, let me repeat that. Jesus as God's only begotten son. He holds a special place of preeminence among his adopted brethren, among Christians. Okay? That's the idea. And this is important. And I want you to hear this. Because it tells us that salvation is not an end to itself. Salvation is not an end to itself as some in our culture seem to think. There's a higher purpose and that purpose is to glorify Christ. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he puts it like this. We must not only think of salvation in terms of ourselves... But we must realize that God's ultimate object in ever planning and introducing the scheme of salvation is to glorify his son. Saints, what a magnificent display of divine glory it will be when God's design for all of us in election has finished its work. When Christ and and all of his glorified brethren are on display for the whole created universe to see. Won't that be a glorious sight? This is the greatest, the most important guarantee of our final salvation. This is the basis for our hope. We know that God will complete his work in us, not merely for salvation's sake, but because he wants to see his son exalted. He wants to see his son glorified. You see that? Well, I know this is a controversial subject. It's a, um, it's a subject that has long been debated in the church. And with that in mind, I do want to spend a little bit of time here this morning just answering a few objections because as always i want i want us to be instructed but i also want us to be able to to uh deal with this issue when it's brought up i want us to be able to give a defense for the hope that was uh, is within us whether it's on the street whether it's a friend 
whether it's to your children. You know, um, your children are going to ask you these questions. The first objection, and this is always the biggest, it's not fair. It's not fair that God would elect some to salvation and others he would not. That's not fair. In my experience, this objection in its many forms is probably the most common. Even when other objections are raised, once the layers are peeled back, this charge usually comes to light. There seems to be a notion that in order for God to be fair, God must at the very least provide a, a fair opportunity to all people. Well, let me say that whether you agree or disagree with the doctrines of grace, and I know some of you in here, you struggle with this. I think even those of us who believe these truths, we all struggled at one point because these are hard truths. But whether you agree or disagree with the doctrines of grace, if you think that God is obligated, listen to me, if you think that God is obligated to provide opportunity, then you do not understand grace. You do not understand grace. And you probably have a higher view of yourself than you should and a lower view of God's holiness. I'm not going to turn there for the sake of time, but we know Romans 9. And as Romans 9 makes clear, the potter has every right to use his created vessels as he sees fit. Every right. If by his grace he saves some sinners, then we rejoice because these people have received mercy. But if God chooses not to save some sinners, if he allows them to perish, has he done anything wrong? Has he done anything wrong? No, not at all. Whereas some receive mercy, others receive justice. Now, to the critic who asks, why does God not show mercy to all? I reply, why must he show mercy to any? Right? Again, if someone tells you that the doctrines of grace make God, and by the way, I mean, you hear anything that, that it makes God unjust to the God of Calvinism is a monster. How many of you have heard that? He's a monster. Simply ask them, do you understand grace? Do you understand that God is not obligated to show you any mercy? If you don't understand that, then if you think God owes you something, you will never understand, truly understand grace as it is presented in Scripture. Well, again, I would submit to you that even when other objections are raised, for, at least in my experience, for 90% of the people, this is what's at the heart. 
But there are other objections as well. Objection two. It does not logically agree with human freedom. The doctrines of grace. Saying that God is sovereign over election. It is either fatalistic making our actions meaningless. Or it means that we are nothing more than puppets or robots. That's the objection. Well, first let me say that the Reformed doctrine of of election is not fatalistic. In fatalism, things turn out as they are ordained no matter what we do. No matter what we do. Therefore, it is futile to attempt to put forth any effort in trying to influence the direction or outcome of our lives. In the context of salvation, this would mean that God will save those whom he chooses no matter what. And I'm sure you've heard that before. Of course, such a notion runs contrary to the truth of Scripture. And although we affirm with Scripture that God is absolutely sovereign over salvation and over all other things as well, we also affirm with the text that God uses means to accomplish His will Therefore, there are real consequences to the choices we make. Our decisions impact our lives and the lives of those around us. So again, this is not fatalism. Our choices have real meaning. They have real impact. And for the notion that we are merely puppets or robots, again, this objection suggests that if God is truly sovereign over all things in the way that as understood by those of us in the Reformed camp, then, then really we are something less than human. Our choices aren't real. We are like puppets under the control of a, 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 a puppet master pulling the strings. But again, we affirm with Scripture that our choices are real. Now, I cannot explain to you how divine sovereignty and human freedom work together. Best I can tell, God has not revealed that to us. But I believe that both are true to the extent that both are set forth in God's word. The mistaken assumption underlying the puppet or robot objection is this, is that genuine choices Genuine personhood mean that our decisions are in no way caused by God. That's the uh, 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 assumption underlying this uh, objection. But under whose authority has such a prerequisite for genuine choices in personhood been set? God has created us and we must allow what he reveals in his word, to define what genuine choices and personhood are. Does that make sense? Third objection. But scripture clearly teaches that God desires to save all people. Often the critic of Reformed soteriology will Reference verses such as 2 Peter 3, 9, 1 Timothy 2, 4, John 3, 16, and perhaps a few others. All of these verses, the critic will argue, show us that God desires to save all people. So 
the Reformed understanding of election, it can't be true. Well, there are at least a couple of ways we can answer this objection. First, in some cases, it may be that the point of a text is not so much to reveal what God is doing in the secret counsel of his will, but rather it is to highlight the universal call by which God calls all people to faith and repentance. This is exactly what many people in the Reformed camp would argue is happening in verses like John 3.16. Even John Calvin himself, he sets forth that uh, such a view in his commentary on this verse. And here's what he says. And he has employed the universal term, whosoever, both to invite all indiscriminately to partake of life and to cut off every excuse from unbelievers. Such is also the import of the term world, which he formally used. For though nothing will be found in the world that is worthy of the favor of God, yet he shows himself to be reconciled to the whole world when he invites all men without exception to the faith of Christ, which is nothing else than entrance into life. However, Calvin goes on to say, let us remember, on the other hand, that while life promised universally to all who believe in Christ, well, or excuse me, let us remember, on the other hand, while life is promised universally to all who believe in Christ, still faith is not common to all, for Christ is made known and held out the view of all, but the elect alone are, the, are they whose eyes God opens, that they may seek him by faith. You know, you guys may have heard me use this term before uh, that we sometimes associate with Calvin. It's called learned ignorance. Uh, Calvin basically said, the Bible says this, I believe it. If it says this, I believe it. If I can't reconcile it, if I can't make the two mesh together, well, that's okay. God can. He's the one who wrote it. So that was kind of the way Calvin approached some of these issues. And again, there are other ways we could look at John 3.16, but, but I know that that would be the position that many of us would hold. Uh, so in other words, if indeed verses such as John 3.16 indicate that God calls all to faith universally without exception, even as Calvin acknowledges, it does not negate or somehow nullify the truth of Romans 8.29 and the many other verses that we have cited, which so uh, clearly set forth the doctrine of election. So, again, that's one way we can answer this. A second way we can answer this objection is to point out that these proof texts that supposedly disprove the Reformed doctrine of election all must be interpreted in context. And often when this is done, we discover that the verse does not say at all what the critic of Reformed theology thinks it does. And just let me take Second Peter 3.9, for example, which says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Now, the Reformed critic, he's going to take this and he's going to say, look, it is plain as day. God does not want anyone to perish, but rather he wants all people to repent and be saved. 
But is that really what this text is saying? If we read the verse in context, we see that Peter is addressing the problem of scoffers who mock Christians because of their hope in the return of Christ. Now, this may be hard for many of us to relate to, but we must understand that these early Christians, they lived with the idea that that Christ's return was imminent, that it was going to take place in their lifetime. And as time goes on and on and, and Christ continues to tarry, there is likely some discouragement, which is further amplified by the mocking of the scoffers. So what we see happening in Second Peter 3 is Peter addressing the seeming delay in Christ's return. And in Second Peter 3, 9, the apostle gives us one of the reasons why Christ has not returned, uh, returned yet. And notice what he says. He says... The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Patient toward who? The whole world? The scoffers? No, toward you, toward Peter's audience. Who is he talking about? He's talking about the church. Then he goes on to say, not wishing that any... Of the church, that's the idea inferred here, should perish, but that all of the church should reach repentance. In other words, what Peter is saying is that what might seem like a delay in Christ's return from the perspective of, of the early church is actually God's waiting, actually God waiting for all of his children, for all of his elect, for all of the church to uh, come to repentance. That's the idea. Christ will not return until his church is complete. Now, let me ask you, does this verse disprove Reformed theology? No, it doesn't disprove Reformed theology at all. It, it affirms it. It affirms what we are saying today, that, that God is going to complete the task that God will not lose any. The golden chain is unbreakable, and we can rest assured that God will accomplish his plans for all his adopted children, past, present, and future. You see that? Well, time is getting away from us. Let me look at one last objection. And it's really akin to something we've already talked about. And surely you've heard this. If the Reformed doctrines of grace are true, if, if God is going to save his elect without, uh, uh, for certain, without a doubt, then why bother to preach the gospel? Why evangelize? What difference do our missions and, and other services really make? Well, again, as you can see, uh, probably see, this argument is, is another way of expressing the argument we addressed before, that Reformed theology makes our actions meaningless. But in this case, the emphasis is on our service. And from the perspective of many who object to Reformed theology... If we already know that God is going to accomplish his will perfectly, 
then why bother evangelizing? Why send missionaries to places where they do not have the gospel? Why go to all the trouble uh, to do ministry work in general? Well, in answering this objection, first I will again reiterate that God works through means. And we are commanded by God to be faithful servants to do the work of ministry as part of that means. Second, I would direct your attention to church history and the many things that God has done through his reformed servants. So if you ask, why evangelize, why minister, why do missions? I would say, ask John Calvin. Ask John Calvin, who sent missionaries from from Geneva to France and even Brazil. And although many of those missionaries were martyred, they continued to go. Ask John Eliot, who in the 1600s was likely the first missionary to the American Indians. Ask David Brainerd, who in the 1700s also brought the gospel to the American Indians. Ask Jonathan Edwards, who also witnessed to the American Indians and whose work was so important in the First Great Awakening. Ask George Whitfield, sometimes known as the voice of the First Great Awakening, who journeyed across the Atlantic for mission work 13 times. Ask Samuel Davies, who brought the gospel to slaves in Virginia, where hundreds of them came to faith. Ask William Carey, sometimes known as the father of the modern missions movement, who took the gospel to India. Ask Robert Moffat and David Livingstone, who took the gospel to Africa. Ask Peter Parker, no, not Spider-Man, but the American physician who took both medicine and the gospel to China. Ask Samuel Zwemer, known as the apostle to Islam, and whose missionary work has been so influential in places like Arabia, Egypt, and, and throughout Asia Minor. Ask John Stott, ask Francis Schaeffer, ask our very own pastors who, as we speak, are in Japan training other pastors. Ask Martin Luther, who in many ways was a Calvinist before Calvin, and whose work, as you know, was so instrumental in bringing about the Reformation. Ask Augustine or Augustine, however you want to say it, who taught these reformed truths before Luther or Calvin, his influence in church history is surpassed only by those in Scripture. Now, I could go on, but I think it's unnecessary. You see the point. The idea that reformed theology makes missions and service unnecessary is not only contrary to a right biblical understanding of means, it is contrary to church history. I would also add something else, and, and, and I, I say this with all due respect to our non-reformed friends. You, uh, I am such a worm myself that I always hate to criticize others, but suggesting that Reformed theology makes our missions and service meaningless. It really reveals a man-centered pragmatism that has strayed away from Scripture. It really does. Let me ask you, why do we share the gospel? Why do we serve? 
Of course, just like our Armenian friends, we want to see people come to faith and grow in Christ. But are these the only reasons we serve? Are they even the most important reasons? No, they are not. Let me give you just a couple of other reasons that we serve. Reasons that I think stand out above some of the others. First, we serve, and if I may expand upon that a little, we we give of ourselves because it is a fitting response to God's blessings and mercy. I love this verse, Romans 12, 1. After using the greater part of this epistle, uh, chapters 1 through 11, to essentially share the many things God has done on our behalf, Paul writes, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. In other words, in light of all that God has done for you, the reasonable response, the reasonable response, the least you can do, is to give yourself totally to God, to live holy lives and serve worship and to be used by God as he would have it. So we serve, we do missions, we evangelize because it is a fitting response to the work of God in our lives. But I would also submit to you that we serve for another even more important reason and we we kind of hinted at that already this morning. Notice what Peter tells us in Second Peter 4, uh, verses 10 and 11. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of that manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. What is the chief end of our service? As important as it is, it's not to see more people come to Christ. No, the chief end of our service, the most important purpose for which we are called, is to exalt and to glorify God. Saints, the assertion that our service is for naught if we hold to the reformed doctrines of grace. It is a misguided, biblically illiterate reason objection that has absolutely zero merit. Well, we're out of time. Um, uh, next week, we'll examine the other three links in the golden chain, so I hope you will come back for that. However, considering what we uh, discussed today about serving, I want to end today with one of my favorite stories from church history. You may or may not know that John Calvin dealt with a great deal of illness during the last few years of his life. However, despite being sick, he insisted on working and, and even preaching when his health allowed. Well, as Calvin's health continued to decline, he eventually became so ill that he could not get out of bed or even raise his body to a sitting position. But instead of just lying there, he would have men from his church come and set him up in bed so he could continue writing. 
Finally, some of these men, they, they began pleading with him. They essentially said, John, you've done enough. It's okay, you can rest. And Calvin simply replied, would you have the Lord come and find me idle? I don't know about you, but that literally gives me chills. Calvin understood the higher purpose for which he was called. He understood the higher purpose for which he served. Because he understood the reformed doctrines of grace, he realized that that he was an even greater debtor to God's mercy. Therefore, he fittingly gave his life in health and in sickness to be used by God. And, And he did so not for his glory, but for the glory of God. Well, this is the same thing I want for each of us this morning. This is the same thing I want for this church. The doctrines of grace, they are not a hindrance to service. If anything, as it was with Calvin, the hope and assurance we have, knowing that our salvation is secure and knowing that it is a complete work of God alone, that should cause us to serve even more diligently It should bring us to our knees in humble submission. And that is my prayer for everyone within the sound of my voice. May we rightly understand these truths and may they give us confidence, not in ourselves, but in the sovereign work of God who we know will accomplish his plans for his glory. Amen? Let's pray. Father, these truths are overwhelming but we we thank you for the the ability to hear these truths to understand them we thank you for the ability we have to to take your word to unpack it to uh to look at it lord with um uh, conviction and and with seeing eyes and 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 hearing ears And Father, I pray that these truths would go forth boldly. I pray that they would continue to convict our hearts. And I pray that they would edify this body, that they would bring glory and honor to you. In Jesus' name, amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.com dot o-r-g